this ever happened to you where you're uh, maybe you read a passage of scripture and the entire week that passage just keeps coming back to you maybe in conversation or or um, how you're doing doing something or your attitude or whatever and you're kind of reminded of that passage of scripture I don't know if that's ever happened to you but that was the way that this sermon was for me this week it would I would say something and immediately this this sermon would be spoken back to me and I would I would do something and immediately the sermon would be spoken back to me so that that's how my week has gone I don't know how your week has gone I pray it's been a, a good week and that you've been blessed uh, by the Lord and that you've had time to spend with him in preparation um, preparing your heart to come in and, and worship uh, with the Lord this week but but uh, may the Lord bless us this morning in a few minutes we will be in the gospel of Luke chapter 2 verses 1 through 7 taking a one-week break from the book of Nehemiah as we look at the gospel of Luke chapter 2 uh, 1 through 7 if you'd go ahead and like to uh, find your way there this morning. It's been said that the only two sure things in life are death and taxes. Ironically, this is how nations also demonstrate their worldly power through their ability to take people's money and send them off to war. And when it comes to taxation and um, uh, mil- mil- militarization, that's a hard word to say, um, Few nations have wielded comparatively more power than the Romans. The Roman army ruled the known world of their day, and this allowed Roman officials to collect revenue from all parts of their empire. Even to this day, people will often refer to paying their taxes as rendering unto Caesar, which comes from uh, the Gospel of Luke chapter 20, verse 25. The power of, of Rome was consolidated by a leader who went by who was named Octavian. He was famous for defeating Antony and Cleopatra at Actium, and he was the first Caesar to receive the August title of emperor. In fact, Octavian was so powerful that he received godlike status in parts of the Roman Empire. There is an inscription at Halicarnassus that hails him as the savior of the whole world. Well, why bring all this up? Well, because Octavian is the Caesar that we meet right at the beginning of Luke's gospel. This is when he's at the height of his power, and Luke gives us this description of him doing what the Romans did best. Would you please stand out of respect for God's word as we read from the Gospel of Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning, Luke chapter 2, 1 through 7 this morning. In those days... A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. 
and all went to be registered each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Let us pray. Father, may we look at this familiar passage of Scripture, and may it speak unfamiliarity to our hearts. O oh Lord, may we hear your word this morning. May our lives be changed because of it. May our desire to be obedient to it. Speak, for your servants are listening. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Please stop and think about this with me for a moment. All it took was a word from the emperor and people that are thousands of miles away are set in motion. Every man in every province has to go and be registered. And it's almost certain that the reason for this registration would be so that taxes could be levied against the people. According to Tacitus, Octavian kept the grand totals by hand. According to Justin, who, was, who uh, uh, wrote in the 2nd century, the census of Crinius could still be viewed in Rome. You have heard of no taxation without representation. This was no taxation without registration. This was a fundamental principle of the Roman government and what they did best. In 1996, Moody Magazine reported 49% of professing Christians agreed that all good people, whether they consider Jesus Christ to be Savior or not, will will, um, live in heaven after they die. 49% of professing Christians believe that. All good people, whether they consider Jesus Christ to be Savior or not, will live in heaven after they die. And if that's true, then the story of the birth of Jesus Christ is a nice story. And it makes people feel good. But that's it. It's just a nice story that makes people feel good. It is perhaps good news, but it's news that you can live with or news that you can live without. However, if the Bible is correct in stating that all people have sinned and all people are apart from Christ, they are under God's condemnation, then this news of this baby that is born in a manger as the Savior is much more than just some random good news. It is instead the most crucial news that anyone could ever hear in their entire life. And that is what we want to see today as we examine this text, this most crucial news of a Savior born in a manger. So first, let's notice what I'm calling... O little town of Bethlehem. You'll notice a little Christmas carol tie-in, away in a manger, 
O little town of Bethlehem. O little town of Bethlehem. We see just how far-reaching Caesar's power is. Kent Hughes, in his commentary, describes it as Octavian's relentless arm stretch out to squeeze its tribute even in a tiny village at the far end of the Mediterranean. Thus, it came about that a village carpenter and his expectant teenage bride were forced to travel to his hometown to be registered for taxation. Here is the beauty of this. Caesar, that what, what Caesar would never know. He unleashed a chain of events that would turn the entire world upside down. Among the millions who had to register, there was a man named Joseph with his fiancée, Mary. This one little family that was unimportant to the rest of the world, seemingly swept up in a tide of earthly power, gave birth to a son who would rule the world. The song that Mary sang in Luke chapter 1 was starting to come true when she said, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estates. What is most interesting about this is that Caesar thinks he is in control. But he is not in control. God is. God is taking the pawns of Caesar and moving them into place to declare checkmate so that the real and true Savior of the world will stand alone as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The Roman registration required that every man return to his ancestral home and Joseph is the in the house and the lineage of David so he must go to the city of David which is Bethlehem and in Luke chapter 1 we read that the angel said that God would give to him the throne of his father Luke 132 Zechariah said that God would raise up a savior in the house of his servant David, Luke 169, and now Luke tells us that Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, came from the royal line of David. The point of all this, of all these statements, is to establish the credentials of Jesus Christ. To fulfill the promise of salvation, Jesus has to be a direct descendant of King David. By having Joseph's lineage, we also are showing why, it's, uh, why it is that he took his family to Bethlehem. Bethlehem was the city of David, which was the hometown of the ancient king, and therefore the place where Joseph must go to be registered. This was another part of the promise that the Savior would be born in Bethlehem. In fact, the prophet Micah makes it abundantly clear. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. To qualify as a savior, Jesus must be born in Bethlehem. But what is so ironic is that God, in his sovereignty, uses Caesar in order to get Jesus to Bethlehem, where he's supposed to be born. 
The proud Octavian became the servant of God's divine plan. In the book, according to, to Luke, David Gooding writes this, For Augustus, the taking of, a, of censuses was one of the ways he employed to get control over the various parts of his empire. But, but and here is the irony, uh, irony of the thing. In the process, as he thought of tightening his grip on his huge empire, he so organized things that Jesus... Son of Mary, Son of David, Son of God, destined to sit on the throne of Israel and of the world, was born in the city of David, his royal ancestors. And what appears to be a fantastic show of the power of Caesar only proves the supremacy of God's sovereignty over everything. Even the decree of Caesar was a part of God's divine plan. God rules over all things for his glory. This is not only true of the events of salvation history, but the true part of God ruling over all things for his glory is true of everyday, ordinary events in your daily life church and and that should that should get us excited to be honest with you that should that should cause you to have goosebumps that god rules over every single little event in your life for his glory and that's exactly what we see god doing here god is always working out his will and he will make sure that he gets the glory in the end even in spite of the things that we do luke tells us where jesus was born and so we have this assurance of his credentials as a savior yet there are scholars who deny the historicity of this part of the gospel they say things like well luke has the facts wrong or that his information is dubious and uh, on almost every score i know because i've read them one objection says that apart from the bible there is no record of any universal registration that spanned the entire Roman world. However, we should remember that the Bible itself is a record of historical events and must be respected as a record of historical events. Furthermore, it's entirely possible that when Luke speaks of the emperor's decree that he's referencing a general policy and not a specific census as it was indeed Caesar's law to count and tax his subjects. Another objection says that it would have been impractical to require everyone to return to their hometown. However, one should not underestimate a tyrant's willingness to inconvenience people. We should be clear on that. In addition, a universal tax census would have been feasible in a time when most people spent their entire life close to the place where they were born and it would have been even more necessary in Israel where people had their identity closely tied to their heredity one more objection before moving on and that is this that Quirinius did not take a census until AD 6 which does not fit the chronology of the life of Jesus Luke was well aware of that census because Luke mentions that census in Acts chapter 5, verse 37. Who is, Luke is also the author of Acts, if you didn't know. He was also aware of another census, one that was taken perhaps a decade earlier. And undoubtedly, this is what he specifies, that Jesus was born during the first 
registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, some people reject this solution because they say that when, when Quirinius was governor of Syria, that, that, that uh, he didn't become governor until AD 6. And so there was no time for an earlier census. Yet, there's also evidence that he had served at an earlier time in office. All of this is to say that Luke knew more about all of this than modern scholars know today. You know why? Because Luke had first-hand knowledge. So he knew. And therefore, there's no reason to deny or doubt that he has all the facts straight. And so what we read in the Gospel of Luke is what we believe because we have no reason to deny that it's fact. Secondly, there was no room in the end. There was no room in the end. As Luke continues to tell us this story of the nativity, we see this contrast between the worldly power of Caesar and the apparent weakness of baby Jesus. However, there's also another contrast, and that's the contrast between the welcome Jesus deserved and the welcome that Jesus was actually given. And stop and think about this with me. Jesus was royalty, son of David, the true king of Israel, but he did not receive a royal welcome. If we want to really comprehend how undignified all of this was, then we simply need to remember who Jesus was and who he is. Luke gives a description that he is the firstborn son of Mary in verse 7. But he was so much more than that. By the power of the Holy Spirit, the child in the virgin's womb was the very son of God. He was the firstborn of all creation who was also uniquely qualified as God. In other words, he is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the creator of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the supreme ruler of all that ever has lived and all that will ever live. He is the second person of the Trinity, the only begotten Son of God, and the complete radiance of the Father's glory according to Scripture. And by his divine nature he shares in the full perfection of God's triune being this little itty bitty baby was born in Bethlehem he was all knowing all seeing all powerful all glorious son of God who who speaks and the very nature obeys him that's who was born in this manger. What, what kind of welcome does this king deserve? What he deserves is to have every person from every nation come and bow down and worship him. What he deserves is to have every creature on the face of this earth from the fiercest beast that you can think of to the tiniest little insect to come to his cradle and give him praise. What he deserves is to have all of the creation itself offer him worship with the very rocks crying out glory to the king of kings and all galaxies both known and unknown dancing for joy because the God of heaven was born on earth. He is God the Son, and anything less than absolute acknowledgement of His royal person is an insult to His divine glory and His dignity. But that's not the welcome He received. 
What welcome did he receive? What accommodation was made for God in human flesh? Luke tells us, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Oh, the irony of the incarnation. That when the Son of God came to earth, the make of the universe and all of its vast immensity, He made everything. He comes to earth, and He can't even get a room to be born in. Now, most people have some thoughts of where Jesus was born. Some of our ideas we have in our minds perhaps aren't correct. The Bible says that there was no room for him at the, at the inn. But what does that mean? Some scholars think that the biblical term katalima refers to a private dwelling, maybe owned by Joseph's relatives. However, more than likely, it refers to the guest house where groups of travelers slept in a common room. These places for lodging were, were primitive uh, places, so, so the Bethlehem Inn was nothing like a, a five-star or even a motel, uh, for that matter, today of today. In all likelihood, this was a nasty and dirty place, especially by today's standards. And on this night, the inn was so crowded that there was no room for Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. And the simple fact of the matter is there's no room in the inn. And so Mary and Joseph took the next best accommodation they could find, which was out with the animals. And perhaps they were in another stabled area or another building or even outside. One early tradition dating back to the second century maintains that Jesus was born in a cave. According to Justin Martyr, since Joseph had nowhere that he could lodge in that village, he lodged in a certain cave near the village. And while they were there, Mary brought forth the Messiah and laid him in a manger. That is not unlikely. In those days, people would often stable their animals in caves like the ones in and around Bethlehem. In any case, Mary and Joseph were sleeping with animals. We know this because the Bible speaks of the manger, which was a feeding trough for livestock, most likely not made of wood like we think, but out of uh, hollowed out of the ground. Let that sink in. This is where the Son of God was born. It was uncomfortable enough just to sleep there. But imagine trying to give birth, ladies, in a place like this. You know, all these animals looking at you, cow, sheep, I don't know. They're staring at you as you're giving birth. And this is part of what it meant for Mary to follow through on her promise when she said, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. 
it meant that she would travel nearly 100 miles in late stages of pregnancy, either on foot or by donkey. It meant the anxiety of having labor pains in a strange city. It meant that suffering her child's messy entrance into the world. It meant wiping him clean from the birth, tearing clothes to bundle him up, and then, and then praying that her son would live. This is how Kent Hugh describes it in his commentary in Luke. Sweat and pain and blood and cries as Mary reached up to heavens for help. The earth was cold and hard. The smell of birth mixed with the stench of manure. An acrid straw made a contemptible bouquet. Trembling carpenter's hands, clumsy with fear, grasped God's son, slippery with blood, the baby's limbs waving helplessly as if falling through space, his face grimacing as he gasped in the cold and his crying pierced the night. We have a song that we sing this time of year called Silent Night, but as Andrew Peterson has written in his song Labor of Love, it was not a silent night. There was blood on the ground. You could hear a woman cry in the alleyways that night. On the streets of David's town, and the stable was not clean, and the cobblestones were cold, and little Mary, full of grace, with tears upon her face, had no mother's hand to hold. Everything we know about the birth of Jesus points to obscurity, indignity, pain, and rejection. Everything. And one of the greatest mysteries of our universe is that the, when the Son of God came, he spent his first night in a barn. And it's unfathomable. It's unimaginable. Let's move on. Let every heart prepare him room. Here's a question, church. And I don't know if you ever asked this question. Because I read this and I think, you know, even growing up, I'd read this Christmas story and I'd say, why? Why? Why would the Son of God be born like this. Why? Does this crude and unwelcome poverty of his birth tell us anything about the way of salvation? And I say, yes. First, the birth of Christ reveals to us the depravity of our sin. When God the Son was born in Bethlehem, he was unrecognized and unwelcome. Yes, there were some Israelites who were watching and waiting for the Messiah. However, most of them were preoccupied with their own concerns that they had no idea what God was doing in the world. They had no clue. And when the rightful king was born, they did not even know that he was a king. 
His birth goes virtually unacknowledged. God said to Isaiah the prophet, The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Isaiah 1.3 The welcome that Jesus failed to receive is the first hint of something that the Gospel of John said about his ministry as a whole. That he came to his own. His own people did not receive him in John 1.11. Jesus would be rejected through his entire ministry right up to the very end. He was driven out of his own hometown. His family thought he was so crazy, they practically disowned him. Many people came flocking to him when they heard that Jesus could perform miracles. But when he started talking about suffering, and he started saying, hey, you're going to eat my body and drink my blood, it says most of them went away. The religious leaders of the day scoffed at him and they rejected the claims and they eventually grew to hate him until finally they tried to do away with him altogether. It was not just Bethlehem. There was never enough room for Jesus. As one commentator said, when Christ first came among us, we pushed him into our outhouse. And we've done our best to keep him there ever since. This is outrageous. The way that Jesus gets shoved aside. It should cause us to be indignant, right? How dare, how dare them shove the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords aside. How dare them treat Jesus this way. How dare them put him on the cross. And then we ask ourselves, what kind of welcome would we have given him? Or maybe even a harder question, what kind of welcome do I give him right now? Have you made room for Jesus in your heart, coming to him by faith? Are you keeping a place open for him in your morning routine? Do you get up in the morning and you think about Jesus? Is there room for Jesus in your daily activities while you're at work or while you're at school or while you're going through your day? Do you think about Jesus? Is there space for Jesus in your home? Does Jesus have room in your life today? We say, well, he doesn't deserve to be shoved aside for everything else. Are we shoving him aside? What I'm asking you, folks, is does Jesus fill your life? Because that's what he wants. He wants to consume your entire life life with his grace. Can you imagine that? He wants to consume your life with his grace. Sadly, many people today make the exact same mistake that Caesar made when he issued his decree. They do not make 
room for Jesus. Norval Geldenhuis wrote that the inhabitants of Bethlehem did in their ignorance as done by many today in willful indifference. What the inhabitants of Bethlehem did in their ignorance is done by many today in willful indifference. They refuse to make room for the Son of God. They give no place to Him in their feelings, in their affections, in their thoughts, and their views of life, and their wishes, and their decisions, and their actions, or even in their daily conduct. Oh, church, the story of the nativity shows us our sin. It reveals to us just how unwelcome Jesus is to us until God, by his grace, reveals him to us as our Savior and our God. And this is precisely why Jesus came. He came to save us from our sins. But to do this, he first had to become one of us. And this is the second thing that his birth reveals to us. And that is the humanity of our Savior. Let me ask you something. Does anything have more of a feel and smell of our humanity than childbirth? Anyone who's ever witnessed the birth of a child knows exactly what an earthly experience childbirth is. If you want to know, ask me, I can tell you. From firsthand knowledge, as I stood side by side with a doctor and helped deliver one of my children in the front seat of our van, I know what an earthly experience it is. And the, the birth of Jesus was earthlier than most births. And by giving us the details of his delivery, Luke shows us that he entered the world just like any other person. And when Mary bundled him up and held him close, she was caring for the body of a real human baby, even though he was the divine son of God. Jesus did not just seem to be a human, nor was he just like a human. Jesus was a human being. He had red blood running through his veins. He had human DNA in all his cells. Martin Luther, in one of his sermons from the Gospel of John, said that Jesus did not flutter about like a spirit, but he dwelt among men. He had eyes, ears, mouth, nose, chest, stomach, hands, and feet, just as you and I do. He took the breast. His mother nursed him as any other child is nursed. Do you believe this? Do you believe that the second person of the Trinity was once a babe in his mother's arms? This is what is meant when we say the incarnation of Christ. That the God of the universe entered into our situation. That he took on all of the limitations of our physical existence. God didn't save us from a distance but he came as close to us as he possibly could, and he sympathized with us in our sufferings. Why? 
because it was necessary for our salvation. It was only by becoming a man that the Son of God could offer his body as a sacrifice for our sins or be raised in body form from the grave, proving that God's wrath was satisfied against sin. Jesus had to become one of us in order to save us. And of course, we are saved by his death, not by his birth, but without his birth, he could never die nor live again. Without the incarnation, there would be no crucifixion nor a resurrection, which is what Luther wrote. Therefore, whenever you are concerned to think and act about your salvation, you must run directly to the manger and the mother's womb, embrace this infant and virgin's child in your arms, and look at him born being nursed, growing up, and going about in human society, teaching, dying, rising again, ascending above all the heavens, and having authority over all things. Salvation comes through faith in God incarnate, the Son of God who lived and died and lives again in true humanity. Lastly, this morning, I want us to see the humility humility of the manger. The last thing I want us to see is that the birth of Christ shows us his humility in our salvation. It shows us his humility in our salvation. We must understand that God is infinitely superior to us. Sometimes, perhaps we wrongly picture God as kind of a bigger and better version of a human being, but that's not the case because he's altogether different. He is God and we're not God. His Attributes are infinitely superior to ours. He is the creator. We are the creatures. Now, with that thought in mind, that God is far superior to us, what was it like for him to take on our nature? It was an act of infinite humility. Immortality took on mortality. Theologians say that for God to be born at all was a humiliation. The circumstances of Christ's birth confirm this. If God the Son had received the universal welcome that he truly deserved, we might be tempted to think that it was some kind of honor for him to become a man. It was not an honor. It was abject humility. It was a condescension of infinite proportions. Although in becoming a man, the son did not cease to be God, he did lay aside the privileges and prerogatives of his deity. He abandoned the glories of limitless heaven to accept the limitations of the earth. And this is put on full display when we see the circumstances of his birth. When we see the son of God lying in a manger, we know that this can only be a humiliation. In the words of J.C. Ryle, We see here the grace and condescension of Christ. 
Had he come to save mankind with royal majesty, surrounded by his father's angels, it would have been an act of undeserved mercy. Had he chosen to dwell in a palace with power and great authority, we should have reason enough to wonder, but to become poor as the very poorest of mankind and lowly as the very lowest. This is a love that passes knowledge. It is unspeakable and unsearchable. He goes on to say, never let us forget that through this humiliation, Jesus has purchased for us a title to glory. There was a reason that Christ humbled himself. He knew that in the end, he could only save us if he offered, if he suffered and died for our sins. And he wanted to show us this from the very beginning. The humility of the birth of Jesus would be the entire pattern for his life. Jesus humbles himself to the point of death. And there's glimpses of this even in his birth. The suffering of the Savior that started with his incarnation culminated with his crucifixion. The same body that was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger would be wrapped with a burial shroud and placed in a tomb. The manger points us to the cross and the grave. And this is how we're saved, by the humility of our Savior. We are saved by trusting that Jesus humbled himself and becoming a man and dying on the cross for our sins. This is exactly, exactly the life that Christ calls you and I to. We are to live according to the pattern of his humble birth and his saving death. The humility of Christ should serve in order to humble us. We are so inclined to insist on our way, to think that somehow we are more important than everyone else or that somehow you and I are more important than we really are, right? Aren't we inclined to think that way? We get angry when people refuse to give us the credit that we think we deserve or show us the honor that we think we ought to be given you might be tempted to say pastor I don't do that really I want to be with you the next time you're driving down the road and someone cuts you off what a moron don't they know how to drive Why do we act that way? Because we think we deserve something better. We think we're better than them. I got to have my way. The truth is, we want to be exalted, not humiliated. I know I want to be exalted. I want to be humiliated. 
I stand in a pulpit week after week, spending hours in study, feeling the desire to hit a home run of a sermon every single week. I make phone calls, I make hospital visits, I counsel people personally in our church, and sometimes I counsel people through email, and sometimes I counsel people that aren't even in our country. I don't even know them, and they ask me strange questions. And there's nothing in my flesh that says, you do that to be humiliated. No, I want people to walk out on Sunday morning and say, great sermon, Pastor. I really appreciated that. Boy, that really got to me. Boy, that one hit me hard, Pastor. Or thank you for talking to me. Or I appreciate all that you do. I want to be exalted. Why? Because I am prideful. And in my flesh, I am so, so prideful because I think I deserve it. That's what it boils down to. I deserve to have that pat on the back. I deserve to have that person appreciate me. I deserve to have that person encourage me. I deserve to have that person lift me up. I deserve it. In the flesh. That's what I think. And you know what happens, right? So what happens? When somebody gossips about you and someone talks about you and someone doesn't tell you great sermon and someone doesn't encourage you and someone doesn't lift you up and someone doesn't do what you think you deserve, you're mad. You get angry. You get upset. I deserve that. Jesus deserve don't you see it his entire life humility humiliation born in a manger laid in a feeding trough king of kings and lord of lords to live his life, to be rejected and cast out and denied and ultimately crucified on a cruel cross, to be spat upon, his beard plucked out, for people to look at him and say, you're no savior. His entire life, humiliation, what do I deserve? truly am going to identify with Christ don't you get it then when that person doesn't appreciate you when that person doesn't encourage you when that person doesn't exalt you when that person doesn't lift you up when those people say bad things about you they gossip about you they treat you wrongly they despise you they reject you they do the thing that you think is the worst possible thing that anybody could possibly do to you And you stop and go, my Savior was humiliated. Why should I expect any different when he said the world hated me? It will hate you too. And we draw ourselves to 
the scripture and we look at passages like Luke chapter 17 when it says, will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table, will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you, when you've done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. Jesus has not called us to be prideful, called us to be humble. In my flesh, I want to be prideful. In my flesh, I want to think, I deserve that. But I don't. Hear me out, church. I'm not saying come in here and treat one another poorly. I'm not saying when you walk out, pastor, that was a terrible sermon. I hated that. That's, That's not what I'm asking. Okay? We should should build one another up, encourage one another, lift one another up. We should be doing those things. Oh, but I shouldn't expect that. There is divinity in humility. The same Jesus who humbles himself for my salvation wants me to humble myself for the sake of others. And the same Jesus who humbled himself for your salvation wants you to humble yourself for the sake of others because he calls us to be just like him and putting others first. He calls us to be just like him and that we take the lowest place at the table. We, we say we take the lowest place for ourselves. We say, I don't matter. I will exalt you. I will lift you up. You are more important than me. That's the life that Christ calls us to. Oh, may we never forget, dear Christian, that although he is the son of God, the savior that you and I serve on Christmas day was wrapped in swaddling cloth and lied in a manger because There was no room for him in the end. Is there room?